January window is, well, is definitely the toughest window because you're mid-season, you're mid-flow. We've had players that have come in and you've sort of gone, we haven't maybe had the chance to get the GPS numbers go, or the club have been, let's, shall we say, reluctant <laughs> or creative in the way creative, that they it. Creative accounting. That creative accounting. <laughs> you know, there was a few hard men around, but not loads. They're quite crazy guys. Uh, no, yeah. Not full-blown. They weren't full-blown, yeah, they weren't full-blown. And, and I can remember early on in the game, you know, if someone tried to do and and they missed you, it was like, oh, thank God for that. You know what I mean? Because it was almost out of the way. Welcome, football fans, to Breaking Lines, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes of the beautiful game like never before. I'm Gary Rowett, former player and manager, joined by the insightful Dave Carolan, a man with his finger on the pulse of football's beating heart. Together, Dave and I bring you unrivaled insight, context, and a few stories from the trenches. Join us as we dissect the game, break down the plays, and explore the intricate dance between managers, players, fans, and the beautiful game itself. This is Breaking Lines, where the game is more than just a match. So start of December, it's uh, not long till the January transfer window opens. How does that start to manifest itself for a manager? Are you already deep in the weeds of this or is it just about to come on your horizon? Well, I think if you're, if you're, if you're good at planning and it's something, you know, some, so I would imagine some recruitment teams would plan for you and maybe the closer you get to January, start to do it. But I think most people... If you want to get ahead of the game, you know, bear in mind, it's a very, very competitive. Let's take the championship, for example. <clears throat> it's a very competitive division. You've got a lot of teams or clubs looking for the same players. You know, let's say there's a number nine out there in Europe. You can guarantee if you went to watch a game, there'd be six or seven other championship clubs there probably watching the same player. You know, that, that's how detailed clubs have got to with the, with, the, um, with the recruitment teams and the sort of the, the way they use data to, to find the players that they're after. So I think most clubs would, most clubs probably, uh, usually what happens is you usually get to the end of, end of August. So let's say the transfer window finishes end of August. You'd probably have a month or two where you almost don't need to watch targets and you start concentrating on your, on your team. Um, and then usually around probably late October, start of November, you start getting the lists again and you start having those recruitment meetings. So typically it would look like once a week you might have a recruitment meeting. So you sit down with a recruitment team and the, um, the director of football or director or head of recruitment and they would go through lists of players, you know, and that would be defined by, right, what, what do you need? Yeah. <clears throat> what do you want? What position do you think we need to strengthen? You know, here's the budget or... We haven't got a budget, but we've got to try and justify it with the owner, whatever way that works, because different clubs work in different ways, different owners. A lot of owners don't want to give a budget because they think if they give you a budget, you're just going to spend that budget. And spend it's interesting. your budget, always it, spend your budget. And it's interesting. So yeah. if you have to justify each signing you're trying to make, I suppose at least it's a case-by-case -case perspective. It actually makes it quite hard to manage, but I suppose it, it's a good way financially of not just Say here's five million. You ain't going to spend two million of it, are you? You spend, spend all five. five. You spend five million. So, so you'd have those meetings with a recruitment team. You would often profile what you want that player to look like and how you want that to look in your system. And they would have to come up with a list of players. And and what you would find is you might find if the recruitment team are really good at what they do, 
you might find five foreign options playing out in Europe, five domestic options and maybe five loan options. So, so you know, the, the foreign and the domestic would be permanent and then five loan options. So I think that's how it would normally work. And then what you then start to do, you then start to bit by bit look through um, the various software that you can use nowadays and you start to watch the games and you start to watch little bits of players. So, so yeah, it would start. It would start that early. There's obviously a difference between recruiting somebody permanently and, and loans. In January, is, it, is there a preference for getting loans in over permanent signings? Are you looking at what you've currently got in the building, maybe injuries that you have and thinking, well, we're going to have to replace somebody for a short time, but I know that that permanent or injured player is going to be back at some stage, in which case he's probably going to be the one that's going to go back in, or you already thinking about, well, I still need to layer changes in my squad over every single window to eventually, over a number of years, build the squad you want. I think it's a bit of both. It's a, a really good point you make because you don't always, the signing is not always for the same reason. You know, everyone presumes that virtually every signing that you make is to make your team better. And of course it is, but actually sometimes within the budget, you look at Newcastle, for example, just lost Nick Pope yeah. for, for a foreseeable period who's been their number one. So, of course, you might have a number two ready to step in and be good enough to do that. But at some point, you're probably going to have to bring another keeper in for short term. So do you bring a number one in? And I suppose that will depend on how the results go up until January. <laughs> and how good or, you think your number two is. And how good you think your number two is, you know, and vice versa. So again, you might need to then layer in a number three underneath if he becomes a number two. So, so there's so many different ways of doing it. So you know, is that an, op I'm, not, I'm using this as an example, but is that an opportunity? Let's just say for argument's sake, that Eddie Howe has doubts over Nick Pope, which of course he won't because he's been absolutely outstanding. But let's say he does. He might see that as an opportunity to bring a number one in permanently. But then this is his excuse to bring him in rather than upset, you know, like okay. a Raya Ramsdale situation, rather than upset the current number one. Now is an easy opportunity to do it. And then that number one's already in town, aren't they? So, so I think there's different ways of doing it in different circumstances. I think like you say, you know, if you've got an injury, but you've got a key player that's going to come back, then usually you're going to just fill that gap till the end of the season. You know, so you're going to go and get a loan sign until the end of the season to, to keep that impetus and keep that squad depth. I, personally, you know, I've always tried to make permanent signings if you can. Because I think sometimes, particularly in the championship, if you look at each window, Sometimes each window, you could particularly the summer window more so than the January window, but you can almost have to just continually have to sign six or seven players. And that's hard work. It's hard work to get the right six or seven. And it's hard work to get that quality every, every time. So I think that's, I think that's a difficult thing. You know, I mean, we've experienced, haven't we, in January? Actually, sometimes January, you actually, if you're going well, you're better off actually doing nothing. Yeah, you can potentially upset an apple cart, can't you, by bringing in somebody who's going to unbalance it, upset the dressing room, and, and then you've actually almost created a problem, haven't you? But with the best intentions, you're not bringing in a player to purposely do that. You're bringing them in to right. hopefully add to the team. However, dressing rooms can be funny things, can't they? What can upset them? Especially if it's a position that you're filling, which has got an influential player, not necessarily on the pitch, but maybe in the dressing room, and they perceive this as being something that's upsetting them or they're being replaced or whatever and now suddenly they influence other people as to 
the shape of the team or the shape of the squad or what the manager's doing. And that does create a problem, doesn't it? I think balance is always key in it to everything. I think you look at a team dynamic, there's so many different things that go into that team dynamic, isn't there? And, and, and the amount of times that you could sign a player that you think, you know, you, you can't just think in black and white terms, can you, as a manager? You can't just think, okay, I'm going to sign a player that I think is better than the one I've got. That's fine. And obviously there is an element of trying to do that when you sign a player. But there's also so many things that go into it, isn't there? There's personality, there's team hierarchy, there's different roles in the team. You know, you've, you've got the sort of the entertainer, the comedy value that, that keeps the team bubbling yeah. at times of need. You've got different types of leaders. You've got the leaders that train and show it by deed, and you've got the leaders that do it by voice. You've got the different dynamics and the different hierarchy within the squad. So there'll always be two or three senior ones that will be the ones that everyone else looks to and they run the dressing room, essentially. So Would it, that be something that, like, sorry to cut across you, but is that something that a recruitment department would necessarily be aware of and c- kind of cognizant of when they're presenting people that the players that they are presenting that might replace some of those key influencers could upset your team? Or is that something you're bringing towards them? Like, we can't really look at a certain player because why is he also available? Is he available because he's not necessarily a, a good egg or a good trainer or a good leader? Yeah, I think exactly that. I think a lot of recruitment teams, and rightly so, I think they just view it, most of them would view it on just performance. Yeah. And, you know, you would start by a lot of it would be the metrics of what you're looking for. And, you know, let's say you're after a target man, number nine. You know, you're, not, you're getting a lot of crosses in the box, but you're not scoring goals. You're struggling to play through a deep block but actually you're putting lots of balls in the box to no effect. So at that point you're saying, okay, well, maybe I need someone with a bit more aerial presence in the box to give us an outlet if, if a team's defending deep and which a lot of teams are starting to work you out as a team. So therefore you're looking for that. So it's very easy from a data point of view to highlight the best ones around, because there's not that many around anyway, but the best ones in Europe. So A dying breed. A dying breed. Right? Yeah, absolutely. We spoke about it before and, and certain positions that are dying out. but. When there's a position with so few available, it's actually quite relatively easy to find the best ones. Now, what you've got to then add the layers in, and you can't really, I suppose, a manager and the staff have, have to add the other layers in predominantly, but those are the players you get. Now, do you go and meet those players? You know, do you go on social media and get another? Like I've done that before where we've gone on social media and we've, we've looked at their profiles. And it's interesting because you learn a lot. You know, if you've got a player that's got, let's say, you know, we had one player once that I think had three kids and on social media there wasn't one picture of any of their kids or their family. And it was all going out with the lads, Vegas with the lads, (laughs) you know, night out with the lads. So, of course, you're only getting a very small window of that player's life. And it's not fair to judge them, but there is an element you go, okay, so maybe, you know, is that player that type of person or is he so yeah, is he a socialite or is he someone who actually protects his family and his kids from there, anything like that there you go so perfect so different way of looking at it but again you, you're trying to get a little bit of a perception of what that player might be so therefore when you 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 have to meet the player you know you, there's so many good examples of when you haven't met a player and the players walked into your door and you've signed them not walked into your door. This is good vision. <laughs> Hopefully it's not a Real concern. Red he was flag. a centre-half, that one. <laughs> yeah, no vision. 
Um, what well, hopefully opened your door and was, was cognizant enough to see the handle and, and see like a load of wood in front of him. But anyway, often that player, you've ended up straight away going, I made a mistake. I've done it before. I've done it where players walked into my room and I thought I made a mistake. Oh, no. Just deep down, something, something that's telling you, the gut feeling, whether that's... The highlight reel really sold the player, but in reality, you didn't see the personality or the... There you go. So, so How they carried themselves. Yeah. yeah. And, that, and, that, and that, you know, is a really crucial dynamic to your club and your team and how you, you know, see it. And, and there's a lot of managers talk about it, don't they? Oh, we, we want to recruit good characters. Well, of course you do. Everyone wants to recruit good characters, but but also there's got to be characters you think you can get the best out of and you can help manage and you can help eke that top performance out of them. Because a lot of times, particularly in the championship, you've got a player who hasn't particularly had a good time at his club. That's why you've managed to sign them. They've maybe fell out with a the manager. They're labelled, he's a bad egg or he's a bad character. And actually, sometimes when you speak to them, what does that mean? What he wasn't happy when he wasn't playing. Maybe showed it a little bit more. Pretty normal, that, isn't it? That's normal. Yeah, yeah. That's normal, isn't it? You know, I would have been a, if I wasn't playing, I wouldn't have been a particularly good character, I don't think. Yeah. Oh, I know I wasn't. But, but that doesn't mean you're a bad person. It doesn't mean you just, you just maybe want to be managed in a slightly different way. Yeah, so. yeah, we also castigate the players who look like they don't care when they're not playing. But yeah. then if they react badly, they're also <laughs> not good. So we want them all to be good boys all the time. Yeah. But actually, do you sometimes need to look at that January window and look for something that might be a little bit different? For example, you identify we don't have enough leadership or we don't have yeah. a, enough nasty characters who might upset the dressing room in some ways to get a response. Well, you've seen it, haven't you? You've seen it from your perspective because, of course, you're working in some ways probably far closer with the players than, than I am in, in a strange way because you're in the gym. You're in the, there at meal times. You're chatting to the players in the mornings. It's a very sort of immersive department, the performance department, isn't it? In terms of creating those relationships and spending time with the players, and, and you will have seen so many different characters. I mean, you you must have worked with players that would have been labelled bad character straight away. You go, I really like this player. I don't really understand. Now I know that's not a manager's perspective, but you must have you must have seen those players that could have been labelled one way, but actually when you understand them a little bit more. Yeah, I think that's, that's part of the skill set, isn't it? You know, we may not stand on the sideline and have to crack the code of, you know, how to win games necessarily, but we do have to try and crack the code of getting the best out of people to facilitate them performing at their best. Now, that's in different ways from maybe what the coaching staff do, where the players may have more value or, or certainly attribute more value to those kind of conversations or touch points that they have with the coaching staff. But a lot of the stuff that we do around the place is trying to understand how we can get them to tick and make sure that they are performing their best, especially when we do spend a lot of time with them. Like, how do we get them to do their strength conditioning work, their prehab, do the rehab effectively, do the conditioning work that we need on the pitch and recovery and eat, all of those bits. And actually spending time with them, you do find that the spikier characters, when you invest the time with them, they're just decent people most of the time, but maybe it's easier to label them and not have to do the groundwork of, you know, getting to know them and know about their families and their lives and that, or their interests. And because not many people have ever done that with them, they assume everybody's going to be like that. But actually, I've, I've had great kind of relationships with what would be considered 
more challenging characters, let's call them like that, because you just invest the time. Of course you do, and that's, and that's part of the skill of what you're trying to do, isn't it? It's part of the skill of any management, whether that's managing players from a performance aspect, isn't it? Or, you know, managing players from a tactical perspective or team perspective. So yeah, you, could, you could certainly end up as groupthink of somebody says they've had a bad relationship with the player and suddenly everybody rose in behind that because it's almost, well, let's all think the same way about the same people. It takes a fair amount of bravery to say, actually, no, I think you're, you're wrong about them. You know, whether it's good or bad, you know, it's, it's easy to see potentially the challenge of certain players and the really good sides of others without sometimes flipping it around and looking from a different perspective. Yeah, so I think, so I think you know, that character, so I think if you're recruiting, that, that data element of finding a player is one aspect of it, of course. And then the assessing whether that player is going to be the right character for your dressing room and how you want to play and how you manage as well, because certain managers will want certain characters. I think leading up to like around now, leading up to January, I think there'd be an expectation of the manager and the staff to maybe go out to a game and watch live if they haven't already done that. So let's say it is a player. Let's say the player's playing in Holland. You go out and fight, try and find, I mean, trying to find the weekend where you might be able to go and watch that player. I mean, particularly in our circumstances where you live, you, you were living away from home. You know, the second the game finishes, you're trying to get back home and see your family. And then to go home and, and explain you've got to go to Holland for Sunday, Monday to watch three players, you know, would be a challenge. Of course, you'd do a lot of that work by video beforehand, wouldn't you? You know, you do a lot of that work beforehand. You'd, you'd watch them. The challenge, I think, sometimes then is, you know, you're going to watch games and you can watch. I remember a couple of examples. So I went to watch a player towards the end of last season who we really, really liked playing in Holland. Went out to the game. There's no fans at the game because they've had some crowd trouble the week before. Right. And, and there's now no fans. So of course, you're getting a very different perspective of the player. You know, this player is a player that likes to play on the edge a little bit, you know, likes to get involved in some of the physical parts of the game, you know, and, and, and probably needs the atmosphere to, to create some of the moments he'd naturally show his, his best bits in. And then I've been out to other games where you turn up and the player's not playing. Oh, yeah. And you've spent, honestly, <laughs> and you've spent five or six hours traveling to get to, to watch that player. You've, you know, you stayed in the hotel the night before, you've traveled to the game, you've sat down. And of course, no one's going to tell you that sort of information. Sometimes the agent can find out, but if it's a selection reason or whatever reason, you know, and I've turned up and players are not playing. So, so again, there's a really... Straight to the bar. <laughs> straight to the bar. Straight, straight out. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, oh, I was a brilliant game, love. Yeah, yeah really, really enjoyed it. Oh, he played ever so well. Yeah, he played ever so Yeah, you don't tell your missus that the player wasn't playing. So, waste of a weekend. But that's, there's lots of different examples. And, and of course, when you're over there, sometimes you might have an opportunity to meet the player discreetly, or you might have an opportunity to meet the player's family, or, you know, to talk to his agent, or to talk to someone at the club. Some, some of the club's... Some of the European clubs are a lot more open about watching their players and they'll actually give you information because they have a model where, you know, they sell players each year and that's a big part. So they actually They're actively, almost encouraging them. I think they actively encourage it. So, so actually, a lot less cloak and dagger than it sometimes is in the, in the UK. Of course, you turn up to a game on a Friday night and if they're not your opponents coming up, people know you're watching the players. Who's he watching? 
absolutely. No, so it's quite out in the open, really. But so but, if people are going to know you there. Then does is there like a fancy dress that you have to go dressed in? Have you got like some you way of idea, staying most in, of it's fancy dress, <laughs> isn't it? Stay incognito, like because obviously there's always people who spot people at games, you know. So do you have to try and find a way of? You can't, can you? I think most managers at this time of year, the easiest way is whack a scarf on, whack a hat on, whack a pe- Do you know what I mean? Like big yeah. coat on. You know, I've seen managers in the last week or so going to watch teams that perhaps they might potentially be in line for that job and turning up and, you know, they're trying to almost cover it. But people, people are like, oh, okay, he's there. Yeah. Is he getting the job? And then the rumour mill starts, doesn't it? So... So it's no different if you're watching a player, really. I suppose what you don't know is who's watching, who's watching who. So and for, and for who? Not not every manager who goes to a game is who's out of work is looking at a job. There may be another manager who's asked them to go along to look at a player from from their perspective. Yeah, you don't know, dear. But of course, as a manager, whenever you turn up at a club, particularly if that manager's under a little bit of pressure, you know. And I've never done that. I never like to do that because straight away everybody start speaking, don't they? And most managers, a lot of managers who do that, you know, essentially they know why they're doing it, don't they? Yeah, they're, of they're going, And I think a lot, a lot less people probably do that now than, than they used to because obviously, you know, that was probably your only way of getting a job. You go there, get to meet the, bo- you know, see the board, get to meet the board and maybe that's how the whole thing would start because obviously the, the way of doing it now is very, yeah. very, very different. So, so yeah, a lot of work, a lot of work goes into January or any window, I think it always changes. You can have a player that you really like and suddenly he's not interested anymore or suddenly the club put the valuation of the player up or the player moves, you know, very early in the window, the player moves and you've done, you know, you've done two months of work on that player and suddenly he's not available. I think you have to have almost a preference sheet, (laughs) a list of players, probably one to one to five of players that you think are achievable. And, and of course, you're relying on, on the recruitment team to, to bring you the players that you could get. Because anyone can put five top players in front of you, can't they? But are those players realistic? And have we actually got a chance of getting them with a budget that we've got? What about the situation like where, let's say, you've got a Premier League team, you're coming to January, uh, you've got a Premier League team that's got a player who's not in favour and not being played but may become available on loan to a championship team, but you know he's not hardly played a minute. So you're now going to have to bring in a player who's potentially not up to speed. Does, does that become more of a challenge? Because you're now essentially either recruiting on loan or permanently a player who's essentially not ready. Well, it's a challenge anyway, isn't it? Because you, you find that whether that's permanent or loan, you can get players in that same position. Often, a player that you're getting predominantly probably hasn't been playing regularly. So you think you have that challenge and, and, you know, we've certainly had it before, haven't we, where you've almost got a view, particularly in the championship, you've got, you've got five or six games within the first three weeks and you know that player probably isn't quite going to be ready or up to speed till match five or six. But you have no choice but to chuck him straight in because if, if you wait till he's a little bit fitter, <laughs> he's probably still going to take three or four more games. And, yeah, you, you know, you've just signed someone the justification of that signing is hopefully he goes in your team and makes your team better. So I think that's a challenge. I mean, I'm sure you've, you've found that challenge as well from a, from a player's performance perspective. You know, we've had players that have come in and you've sort of gone, we haven't maybe had the chance to get the GPS numbers score. The club have been 
let's shall we say reluctant to, <laughs> or creative in the way that creative, they shared it. Creative accounting. That creative accounting. <laughs> but then you've took a player in and you're suddenly going after after I'm sure conversations, realize the realization that this player has hardly trained or played at all. Yeah. Unfortunately a little bit of cloak and dagger sometimes because why are you letting the player go for whatever nefarious reason, either uh, good or bad, but I suppose it's like selling a house. You're only going to tell the good parts. You're not going to tell them about the fact that the, the hinges on the back door aren't particularly... <laughs> Never buy a house off Dave Caroline, I think, is, the, uh, is, uh, is what we're getting from no, this. No, the hinges are all there. Nothing is unhinged. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, it's, if you're getting a player in on loan generally, like you even see it in the summer, don't you? You get players who are coming to you who've hardly... seems to be more and more frequent now that players have hardly played in pre-season because the club has just got an eye on them going out on loan. They're not part of the plan. So rather than even waste as such minutes that they could give to somebody else, either a development player or one of your current players, um, they just leave them doing, you know, training with a view to they're going to go out and loan and then they arrive at your door and like they've hardly done a thing. And even more so in January where if they've been out of favour somewhere, you know, there could be six, eight weeks that they've not set foot on the pitch in earnest. And now you're bringing them in and you're trying to think, well, how much can I risk this player playing considering he's here to play? Um, he's been recruited because we want him to go in the team. But if we don't manage this correctly, like he could break down in two minutes, in which case you as a manager are going to be looking over at me kind of going like, yeah, broke another one. <laughs> the bane of every coach's life, isn't it? Where the head of performance or the physio comes in in the morning and says, I think he could probably get through maybe 45 minutes or 60 minutes. And, and you can see that old school coach sat there thinking, you're dictating how long he can play. But the reality is you can't just dive straight into 90 minutes, can you? It's good practice to be able to say, look, he can start the game, but I'm pretty sure that he's going to get to 60 minutes and it's going to be an injury risk because he hasn't played hardly any football. And I think that's probably the skill and the relationship between people isn't it and obviously we've I think I like to think we've done that quite well haven't we where you understand that it can't always work to that specific plan yeah you know, you've seen it before haven't you 60 minutes pre-season where a player's looking over always <laughs> waiting like, well, why am I playing it's 61 minutes why am I still on yeah you know you want them to essentially just crack on through and let us make the decision but, but I think those decisions are important and I think that's why the January window is well it's definitely the toughest window because your mid-season your mid-flow, a player could be coming from a club that they don't train with the same intensity as, say, we do, or coming from a club where they train with more intensity and actually, you know, they're not used to a different type of training. So it's a real minefield, I think, and it's, and it's a, a difficult one, which is why I think that if you're successful or if you're doing well, actually, you'd be very brave because, of course, of all the external pressure that goes on around the transfer window to have TV shows and for hours and hours and days upon days beforehand. Um, I know I like to dress in yellow in, you know, kind of I in try- sympathy with Sky when it comes like to it. the end of the uh, January transfer You're window. You're just trying or to get on the old Jim White transfer Jim window White, show. Yeah, I just want to be there with a yellow tie on or <laughs> yellow boots, something <laughs> yellow. because Peter, that's- you want to catch Peter Rod and Wingy outside, don't you, outside the gates? Waiting to, waiting to get in on that famous story. Yeah, I like but. to parole the area around the training ground <laughs> late on transfer deadline day looking for random players that have driven to the training ground looking so for a in. move. Yeah. 
But, that, but, that's, but that's a challenge, isn't it? So I think you'd be brave with all that external pressure not to not sign anyone and just carry on as normal. But often that is the best way. So an interesting one this week where Michael Owen has been talking about whether past players would be able to play in the Premier League today. And he is of the opinion that all of the great players of the past would be able to play in the Premier League. What's your thoughts on that? Well, I thought at first you were going to say about his one where he threw an apple in the bin or something where he was talking about elite elite players are competitive and he used to throw his apple in the bin. And well, we all did missed, that, didn't we? Thought, yeah, well, there you go. That's what I thought. <laughs> um, so, well, some people eat it all, don't they? I mean, that's a bit weird, isn't it? But, but um, anyway, um, yeah, I, I think it's a difficult, it's a really difficult debate, isn't it? I mean, how can you possibly get to any sort of a definitive answer? But I think... You know, for me, it's when he says about the, the top players would be fine today. Of course it would. You know, I think the top players of any era would, you know, how, how can you judge someone like a Maradona and a Pele? I'm talking about the top, top few players. When you look at some of the, when you see some of the old footage and you look at some of the pitches that they played on, some of the pitches that they trained on, some of the equipment that they used and, you know, forget all this, the game's so much quicker and all of these things. Those players were just brilliant, brilliant, supremely talented players that would have undoubtedly been the top players of this era as well. You know, and I don't necessarily think the top players doing it is the debate. I mean, I've often thought about, you know, firstly, what's different? You know, what what would be different? What would stop that happening? You know, you've got, the pictures are different, aren't they? You know, is the support massively different? I don't think it necessarily is. Um, the support staff? Yeah, maybe the support. Yeah, maybe the support to the players. Yeah, that, that would be different, wouldn't it, in terms of the, the science behind it, the S&C behind it. Yeah, I think when I've looked at it, uh, I was trying to think about this and think, well, they would have been exposed to new training methods, which the current players have. So would they have been able to cope with that? Of course they would. They would have been exposed to the same thing. The equipment, all of that, they'd have access to all of that. So there's there's zero advantage to the modern player. The pitches would have been better. The food would have been better. The support would have been better. But I suppose the thing that they all have, those top players, is they still thought about the, the game differently. They still had supreme technical skills. They had tactical understanding and intelligence. Which, no matter whether you're a good player in any era, if you have those attributes, all the other things being equal, you're going to be better. You're going to cope. And I think that's the thing, isn't it? I mean, one of the things that people say all the time, don't know, players are more athletic now. Do you think the players, do you think the players are more athletic or do you think that, again, you didn't need to be as athletic back then or you didn't, or it was a different type of athleticism? Different. I mean, you've got to be pretty athletic to be able to have 10 points on a Wednesday and perform as well as they did. I look at someone like George Best. I mean, imagine if he was teetotal and really professional. He probably wouldn't have been as good a player in, in his own words. <laughs> Where did it all go wrong? Well, that might have been but, his age, wasn't it? And that's yeah. why he was so good. But you look now and you go, like, is, are the players more athletic? You know, are the players more athletic? Well, the game certainly got quicker. But again, all of these things, they, they move forward in increments, don't they? It's a, it's not quite glacial movement, but 
as the game develops and the coaching and the tactics develop, the players adapt to that. It's it's Darwinian, isn't it? You know, so put any of those players in the same circumstance, you would expect that they would have been able to cope and their level of game intelligence and, and their technical skills are going to be the bit that separates them from either their peer group when they were playing or the same players that they're going to be playing against now. There was a great article during the week. I can't remember whether it was on social media or whether it was in like just traditional media. And it was talking about the Aston Villa team that in the early 80s that I think won the league with 14 players across the whole season. 14 players used across the whole season. On an average weekend now, practically every team in the 92 are going to use more players in one single game than Aston Villa used in the whole season. That's incredible, isn't it? When you when you look back to, like you say, you know, they often had one sub, and then it became two subs. You know, I mean, you look back then, it's like players just played games, didn't they? Players just played every week. And, and that'd be an inter- I mean, it's an, it's a, it's a, it'd be a whole new debate on, uh, you talk about could play could players back then hack it now? Well, one thing's for sure, you know, they were certainly a lot sturdier in different ways. And whether that's because of the game, pitches are softer. You know, if a game's got quicker, obviously that's going to, the prevalence of injury is going to go up. But you think there's not many players now that in a squad would just rattle out 40-odd games year in, year out without any sort of, talk about rotation, never had any rotation, did they? But Unless they're working with us, of course, in which case we make them super robust <laughs> and no injuries ever. Yeah, well, of course, of course. Yeah, that goes without saying. But like, you look at some of the top players. I mean, let's, let's not go as far back as you know, the Pelés and whatever, but you look at Ronaldo, you know, Ronaldo, like Brazilian Ronaldo, Ronaldo, yeah. The real one. Yeah. Well, I'm not saying that. The first one. You're not telling me, you know, like he would want, imagine him now, you know, but you can just envisage him in the Premier League, can't you? Oh my. He'd be as good as any striker in the Premier League, if not better. Yes. Right this moment. Thierry Henry, back in his day, I mean, I had the, I had the privilege to be left in his wake many a time. I'm wondering what the hell I do next. But again, you know, you talk about athleticism and speed and put him on a Cisgrass pitch or a Desso pitch. And, and uh, by the way, those companies owe us money now because we've just mentioned, that, you, mentioned them in the podcast. I was going to ask you about that. You yeah. do like to mention a Cisgrass Well, that's, that's Cisgrass, what I'm doing. But, I'm trying to, trying yeah. to give, us a, give us some funds to continue the improvement. But certainly Thierry Henry would have just flown over yeah. those surfaces, wouldn't he? Thierry Henry, you know, then, then let's strip it back to, say, a John Terry. You're not telling me John Terry still wouldn't be a top. Roy Keane still wouldn't be a top player. They just would, wouldn't they? Yeah, they, um, they would have found a way. I think I, I always look at it from my own perspective sometimes. So, so I look at it as a somebody played in the Premier League against some of those players. And I look at it and I think, would I be a Premier League player now? I know it's a difficult, you know, to bit of narcissism is going to come out there if I say, oh, well, undoubtedly, I was going to be our top Premier League. Yeah, but I look at it and think, could I have been a Premier League player now? And I, and I don't know. And I think that's the big debate. The big debate is the top players would have done it at any level, at any era. Would the ones down from the top players still have played at that level? And I don't know the answer to that. But what I would say is sometimes when I look at the championship, the top end of a championship, that feels a little bit like that could be the Premier League 
of old. Do you know what I mean? At times, and I think that I think that's uh, um, that's certainly one of the the challenges that I think I would have faced. You know, I think I was quick enough to deal with it. I think I was okay enough on the ball to deal with it. But I just think a general standard and quality of Premier League players now, whether that's because each team's got top, top European players, the top South American players, whereas back then you probably had one or two top foreign import, you know, like that that was what each team had, didn't it? So the rest were the rest were English. So therefore, you know, it was a lot easier as an English footballer to to get into the Premier League. Whereas now I think I would be a Well I think if you were English, Irish Scots or Welsh. British, sorry, I meant British. British or Irish. Yeah. Yeah. Let's let's not rope those all in <laughs> together, please. But certainly a lot of players back in those days got to play in the Premier League. Obviously transition from the old Division One. And they they maintain the presence, whereas now it's a global recruitment, isn't it? You know, you've got unbelievable nations being represented across the, the whole of the Premier League. There must have been there must have been 120 odd countries have now been represented in the Premier League and suddenly you're seeing that those opportunities for those old players would they, would they now given the global recruitment if there was global recruitment back then a lot of players maybe wouldn't have been Premier League players maybe that's what you're alluding to you know that it, it would have filtered out a lot of players who've played in the Prem who probably wouldn't and that's what I'm saying so I think that I think the debates actually quite an easy one to at least come somewhere with it in terms of an answer. And I think that the best players of every era would still be the best players of this era, along with some of the other, you know, because of course every era has their best players. But I think the the average players of every era might start to get pushed out a little bit. And I think that would be an interesting one. If you look at some of the outliers, I mean, you look at the way the game has developed in some way so okay let's start with everybody wants to play from the back so maybe that would have the odd keeper or two would have now maybe struggled to play you know if that wasn't a skill of theirs because that wasn't a skill that what if you weren't allowed to pick up back passes from the halfway line and hold on to them and then roll it out and then pick it up again but there you go but you must have had some top top keepers back then who were Brilliant goalkeepers, brilliant shot stoppers, you know, dominated their boxes, but probably were very basic on the ball. And, and but, you know, obviously they didn't have the coaching and the training that was required. At the time. We, we haven't got rid of it. all of those, by the way. There's still some there, but, <laughs> but what I'm talking about, the very, very top level of the Premier League. Yeah. So maybe someone who was one of the top goalkeepers in the world, maybe wasn't quite as good with their feet. So that might that might be an interesting debate now. Centre-back. So I'm just looking at the kind of outlier positions back then. So centre-back, you know, obviously everything, let's say 90s, let's be, let's be kind and say 90s and earlier. A lot of centre-backs, good in the air, big, strong brutes of men, didn't necessarily need to be too cultured at times, but could make a good living in the Premier League by just being physically dominant. Well, that, you know, wouldn't be quite as applicable now, would it? So would a Franco Baresi and a Paolo Maldini oh, still yeah, be able were. to cut it? I oh, think they so. Were, yeah, yeah, they were they were sensational. Right. Let's 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 take this, turn it on its head. Go on then. Right. Modern players 
playing back then. Oh, wow. So would they be able to cope with... Here's a real thing that changed the game, is the laws have changed, the protection of players. Like Maradona used to get absolutely hacked all over the place. Like some of the modern players don't have to deal with that. They don't have to cope with it. No, again, I think you see the best players find a way, don't you? If you look at someone like Messi, and you look at some of the games, would be a bit similar to a game where you see Maradona getting absolutely battered. In a different type of way, Messi still would get battered physically by people because of the type of player he is. And he seems to find a way wherever he is. But, but you're right. And, and, and actually, that's probably an even more interesting debate, isn't it? But, you know, which players would have survived back then? Because you've now got a ball playing centre half or a goalkeeper is brilliant with his feet, but now all of a sudden that, but you see it now, don't you? If a team occasionally, I saw a game the other day where one team was actually really direct and the other team were passing team. And, and every team, every time the team was direct, the other team were like, oh my God, look like they've never had to deal with that before. <laughs> so you go back. 30, it is a different challenge, isn't it? It's a different challenge. You go back 30 years and you think, you think of the size. But again, people find a way, don't they? But if you're a centre half, and you've got a six foot four, you know, you've got someone like Dion Dublin up against them, or you've got, you know, whoever that is up against them. It's a challenge, isn't it? It's a, it's a challenge if you're not a physical centre-back, you know. Fa- but I think players adapt with the environment, don't they? And it's always very difficult to then compare. Well, I, th- I think back in the day, you would have had to adapt or die. So I think if you're a slightly flaky wide player at the moment and you'll come up against That's most of them isn't it <laughs> Julian Dix or oh. Stuart Pierce who've oh, got yes. you you know lined up and I mean lined up then you're going to have to adapt pretty quickly because th- th- there's not going to be VAR to get you out of the tackles there wouldn't have been referees kind of gave you the first tackle and you knew then that the first tackle was probably going to be bone crunching in which case would these players of the modern era have even coped. But you look back then, don't you? And like you say, some of those, some of those first challenges, I mean, they were disgusting, weren't they? Brutal. I mean, they were brutal, <laughs> weren't they? You, see, you could go back and see a compilation of first challenges by defenders. And it was like, right, I've got one opportunity to maim the winger and try and get him carried off. And then I'm going to jump up, waggle my f- one <laughs> finger in the air as if to say, first one referee, first one. And they would always let the first one go. When you look back at that, it was a crazy, crazy rule, wasn't it? Because it was lit. If you, it, you knew as a, I remember being a young forward, believe it or not, at Cambridge. And I remember playing against the sort of the dying embers of the crazy gang, if you like, or some, you know, there was a few hard men around, but not loads. The quite crazy gang. Uh, uh, yeah. no, not full blown. They weren't full blown. Yeah, they weren't full blown. And, and, I can remember early on in the game, you know, if someone tried to do you and, and they missed you, it was like, oh, thank God for that. You know what I mean? Because it was almost out of the way then. Um, but it was every team, wasn't it? Every team, you know, would have three or four really, really tough. Look, they're all good. You, you know, you talk about Stuart Pearce and Julian Dix. I mean, get, again, both fantastic players, you know, like brilliant left foots. But, God, they were tough, weren't they? You know, and, and, and used to play against, I mean, I played, when I first went to Cambridge, I had sort of two different, not two different spells, but I think we're in the, 
first division championship and I think they went back down to the first division. There were some of those games, you know, you go and play against, I don't know, Hartlepool or what, I'm not saying Hartlepool, but just randomly Hartlepool away. Yeah. And they would have this, the toughest centre-half you've <laughs> ever imagined. And you're 18 years old and, you know, he might have been 35, 36 coming to the end of his career, but he knew exactly what he was doing against a young player. And they would just try to intimidate you all game. Uh, I remember playing, I remember playing against Newcastle and Brian Kilkline. Killer's ball. They used to shout killer's ball. Oh, my goodness. Like, oh, right. my God. Couldn't get out of the way quick enough if you were the striker. So. When's the last time you, you saw a reducer tackle? Because that used to be a term for it, a specific type of tackle that a player would almost apply, wouldn't it? It would be a targeted tackle on a player which was meant to almost negate whatever superpower he might have. Do you know what? I think ah, it's been a while, isn't it? You just don't, you just don't see it anymore, do you? You don't see it anymore. Probably, it's, probably not a bad thing either because some players got bad injuries. Oh, some, those, some, yeah, I can remember. Well, I think, it, I think there was a clip on YouTube. Might still be out there, but I think it's like a 1970s football match and there's about a 20-second clip. And honestly, I've never... It makes your toes curl. There's about 10 red card challenges within that 20 seconds and not one player even got, but I don't even think one was even a foul. And you looked at it and you went, wow, genuinely looked like a different sport. And, and I think, you know, look, for all the sort of melancholy sometimes when you've watched football from that era and there is some, you know, if you're a fan, there is something, I think there's something nice about watching a team and you see a player goes absolutely lever an opposition player in a fair full-blooded challenge you know there's, a, there's an element of you know the commitment that the players got and you know it was a skill back then but I think that's changing isn't it and, and certainly the game has adjusted accordingly to it but I would imagine in those circumstances there'd be quite a few players now that would struggle <laughs> to cope with some of the physical elements certainly but I think the best players I think the best players back then would be the best players now it'd be great to see them wouldn't it some of those some, you know it, it if every if every fan could pick maybe two players from their history of their club and we could somehow bring them back to life and put them on a beautiful pitch with a new boots and a new ball, wouldn't it be brilliant to see that one game? It'd be priceless, wouldn't it, just to see how yes. good the players were? Certainly some of the skills that we've probably lost out on, you know, the art of the, the really good dribblers or whatever it was, you know. I always remember Bruce Rehock talking about one of the young players when he came in asked him what position he played and and of course the modern terms of a 10 or a cam or anything like that weren't invented so he, he said he was you know a shooter a shooter, a shooter. who said this this is Bruce Riach well, someone asked like, Bruce Riach what, what he played he, yeah but he, he was like I was a midfielder but I was a shooter and of course that was Bruce's term for essentially when he moved out of kind of midfield and was progressing up the pitch, if there was a chance 25 yards out on his left foot, he was shooting. Speaking of Bruce, I remember him saying about how he developed as, as a player himself. And of course, when you sit down with managers and you speak to them about their past, you find out a lot of in interesting and intriguing things about what made them a good player. Like he was a top, top player, captain of Scotland in the World Cup. He said he used to drive on a Tuesday or Wednesday night if one of his opposition teams were playing somewhere local to him. He would himself, as a player, drive to the game, get a ticket, and go and watch his opposite numbers play because there wasn't a Y scout. There wasn't YouTube clips. 
to to understand players, there wasn't television of every single game. You had to go and watch players. And maybe that was, is that a lost art, the kind of level of detail a top player would probably go to? I know nowadays they're probably doing it because they're getting all the clips presented to them. But it just struck me that someone like Bruce would be driving in his car across the country, across not even motorways, A roads, while nowadays players are sat with headphones on playing Call of Duty. <laughs> but, but that was a dedication, wasn't it? And I think that's, you know, I mean, partly down to what life was like back then, that you didn't have those distractions necessarily. You probably had a little bit more free time in certain ways, but it's still the dedication, isn't it? It's still what the top players would have would have had to do. I mean, you speak about that, you know, back then, the skill of, you know, I remember seeing a clip, but was it Ronnie Radford? FA Cup game, was it for Hereford? Hereford, the, pit. the famous FA Cup Was it Newcastle against Newcastle or something like that anyway? But yeah, famous, yeah. And you look and you go, the ball's heavier, the boots, are he- the boots are way more, the pitch was horrific. I think the players weighed more. <laughs> the players weighed more. And he struck a ball that was as pure as you're ever going to see from about, if I remember, about 40 yards out. Um, now, I'd have to go and watch the goalkeeping to see whether that, quality was as good but but um but it was an unbelievable strike and you can't tell me that you know that that player wouldn't be if he could do it back then he would be even better at doing it now so yeah. so um you know nostalgia different eras we all like to think our era is better than the previous one sometimes but actually i think the top top players were so talented that they would have they would have certainly found a a, a way well, we ha- we certainly don't see players like Bruce Grabelard in his knee shuffle or whatever that was. <laughs> a lot of different characters, weren't they, back then? I mean, there's certainly a lot more, not more charismatic would be unfair to say, but I think players now have turned into like super professional players that perhaps they're not allowed to show the same level of emotion on a football pitch for different reasons. And actually, you know, if you look at some of the players in the past, I mean, it'd be, you know, some of the characters and the charisma and the the fun that they had on a football pitch was was um I think the fun that they had off a football pitch as well but but maybe that's where technology has helped the game develop but also it's ruined some of the characters but you know there would be so many stories to tell but thankfully there were no phones uh with camera facilities available back then I think if you needed to use a phone you had to go to a phone box professionalism off the pitch. I don't know if we can do that. <laughs> I don't know if we can do that episode. No, we leave that one. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, please give us a like or subscribe to us on your chosen podcast provider. We look forward to seeing you on the next show.